Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator and the editor of its US edition. We thought that 2020 was going to be all about the presidential election, but now it will forever be the year of the pandemic. So instead, Americano is going to look at how COVID-19 is transforming the United States and its politics. There's a lot to talk about, perhaps even more so than before. So please keep tuning in. I'm joined today by the writer Coleman Hughes, and we're going to be asking, what is racism in America? Now, Coleman, I asked this question because uh, I think Merriam-Webster, the American Dictionary, is now going to update its definition of racism after a student complained to the dictionary to include systemic racism. And I think a lot of white people particularly white people in America, are confused about what racism really means now because I think a lot of us knew what we thought it meant. It meant not hating people because of the colour of their skin or not being prejudiced against people because of their ethnicity. But now it seems to mean something very different and it's something we're all guilty of, it seems. What's going on? Well, what's going on is in 1967, a term, a concept was invented called institutional racism didn't exist before that year. And it was invented by the founders of the Black Power Movement, Stokely Carmichael, who was later named Kwame Ture, and Charles Hamilton. The Civil Rights Movement managed to fight racism and achieve landmark reforms without ever invoking this concept of institutional or systemic or structural racism. In the past, let's see, 53 years, that concept has gone from a little known concept only used by a handful of activists and scholars to a completely mainstream and in fact probably the mainstream definition of racism and the problem with it is that it's always been vague i was interested to find that a, a book last year by ibram x kendi who is a very popular best-selling anti-racist author who also writes for the atlantic and has written for the new york times and elsewhere wrote a book called How to Be an Anti-Racist, which was part memoir, part part sort of how-to, the basics of anti-racism 101. I see it's in the, the top 10 bestsellers again. That's right. In that book, he did not use the phrase institutional or systemic racism because he found that he was not actually able to explain what it meant to Joe Schmo, which is, you know, to the general reader. I thought that was very interesting because if someone like Ibram X. Kendi, whose job it is to explain racism, you know, in simple, in, in, in language that a non-PhD can understand, if someone like him can't do it, that tells me that there's probably something wrong with this concept to begin with. I think it's vague intentionally for a reason because it it's just, a, it becomes a suitcase term into which we can throw anything we want. Do you think, and, and not just with racism, do you think it's the word systemic or systematically, and certainly structurally, people use it when they don't actually know what they mean because they feel something. So it, it covers up the sort of cognitive absence to use the word systemically. Yeah, well, so here, here, so let's give an example of like classic systemic causation. Sometimes people talk about, you know, trends in the stock market as systemic. You know, if the stock market crashes one day, usually it was not because any particular person had some kind of 
you know, zigged instead of zagged, made some conscious decision to make the stock market crash. Really, it's millions of people all acting, responding to rational incentives. And then when you zoom out and look at what happens to the system, this crazy thing happens and you have to analyze it in terms of systemic rather than individual causes. And, and there's really no one to look at and say, you're, you're the reason why, you know, you pulled your money out of this investment and that's why, that's what caused the whole thing. That's where it makes sense to talk about systems rather than individuals. But, you know, the strange thing about systemic racism is that they want to emphasize that the system rather than individual racism is to blame. But then it always somehow comes down to individuals being blamed for being racist. It doesn't make any sense. At the same time, you're supposed to feel incredibly guilty for the role that your individual bias has played. But at the same time, this is somehow supposed to be about the system rather than about any individuals. It's kind of incoherent. And if you go back and read the, the very first coinage, the first account of institutional racism in 1967, one example they give is you know, a landlord or a real estate agent you know, being racially biased towards a prospective black homeowner. Now, to me, that just sounds like individual racism, right? You're talking about a landlord who, because of his or her own racial bias, is, you know, treating this prospective black homeowner differently. I thought that was covered in the idea of racism to begin with. I don't think we would need a whole new concept to cover that kind of example. Really, what they originally meant by it was subtle, nonviolent racism. Or unconscious, perhaps. I'm not even sure if they meant it that way, but yeah, they, they meant really what they meant by it. If you go back and read the original, they, they said that individual racism is when the KKK burns a cross on your lawn. Systemic racism is when the landlord or, or the real estate agent steers you to a different home because you're black. So that that's not really what people mean by it today. I'm not even sure what people mean by it today, but then what they re- really meant was subtle and perhaps unconscious racism. Today, it's used as a catch-all term to to describe a myriad different things, some of which have nothing to do with racism, um, some of which do. And at minimum, there's a long conversation to be had about what, what the hell it means. And I think that whole conversation right now is being reduced to either you think institutional racism is real and you're on the right side of history and you're a good person, or you have doubts about it and you're a bad person, and you're Hitler and on the wrong side of history. And to, to, I, I spent a lot of time looking at the literature on this stuff, and it's it's complicated. People don't agree. You know, it, it's, it's been even been criticized by people, scholars on the left, for being vague. Which systems are you talking about? All of them? You're talking about healthcare? You're talking about prison system? So yeah, it, it's a it's a strange term to say the least. It's become almost cliche to say that it's really sort of white particularly if you look at the sort of mania of the last few days that we've had, that it's white liberal guilt kind of uh, expressing itself. And this is, what, this is what's going on, is it's, it's privileged white people who sort of feel unconsciously guilty and they know that there's something wrong with their status of privilege and so therefore their, their, sort of, their class guilt almost is being replaced by a, a striving for, racial, for a racial equality that they don't necessarily know what they're striving for. Yeah, I mean... A lot of what you're seeing is, I mean, there have been some, a lot of commentary on this, but let's say you're a white person, you have a good amount of money, enough money to put your kids in, in, in very good private schools. You've never considered living in 
East Harlem or the South Side of Chicago or or whatever, much less, you know, even walking through those neighborhoods because you know the reputation they have and you you can easily afford to live in places where the crime rate is virtually zero. You know, th there's often a sense of guilt that comes with that because you you know how much unearned privilege you have in life. It is true, and this is a this is a a basic and important truth that a lot of well, luck is by definition unearned. And some people are born incredibly lucky, and some people are born incredibly unlucky, even if they're living in the same town, definitely the same country. And then if you, if you want to look out at the world, you know, the difference between being born in the Congo and being born rich in London, you know, like, so people born lucky often feel guilty for that fact. And when someone says, well, here's a little way to assuage your guilt by retweeting this hashtag Black Lives Matter, you know, without actually, you know, giving up any of the, you know, lifestyle that you've become accustomed to. Yeah, that's that's enormously attractive to people for very understandable reasons. I don't mean to to sound too even too judgmental of, of these people, because of course who who would not want a way to expiate their sins? And not give anything up. Yeah, exactly. And why do you think the George Floyd killing or the death of George Floyd has triggered this sort of tsunami of what, is, what let's call it liberal guilt? What do you want to call, whatever you want to call it? This tsunami of emotion around the country and now around the world. What what was it in particular? What was it? Is it something to do with the timing? Do you think it's after the lockdown? There's been a lot of talk about that. What is it that actually triggers this? I think there's a few factors. First, there's the fact that George Floyd was black. I know that sounds too obvious to say, but I have to say it because there was a man named Tony Timpa who was white and who died almost exactly the same way a few years ago on video, and most people still don't know about it. So the, the fact that it was a white cop doing it to a black suspect rather than to a white suspect or you know a black cop, that it resonates very deeply with not only the American consciousness, but I think European and you know the whole English-speaking world in general, because the images of the the civil rights peaceful civil rights protesters being hosed and having the dogs sicked on them by by white cops is so deeply seared into the American sense of what is wrong that when we see anything that looks like it, all of that energy gets activated, and we don't think we don't think of the fact that it happens to white people too. So there's that. There's the fact that the video was unusually brutal, even for an instance, you know, dozens of people get killed by the cops unarmed every year. Most of them are white, but few of them are, are quite as brutal as what happened to George Floyd uh, or Tony Timpo, which is to say, usually it's, it's them mistaking the wallet for a gun. It's two or three shots and the person is dead. And it's hard to watch, but it's not as hard to watch as having a knee on someone's neck for, for nine minutes. So there's that. And then I think there's the, the COVID factor. I think everyone is at home and restless and you know unemployed and has nothing to do and is frustrated and is antsy. And they're much, watching more news than they should be. And they're on social media more than they should be. And so when the opportunity comes to break lockdown and get outside and A, not suffer any moral opprobrium for it because you know obviously no one is criticizing the protesters in this case for breaking lockdown but of course everyone at some level wants to because we're extremely bored and restless at home 
so you go go to that it's, it's almost like going to a concert i've been to several of the protests and they're very um you know regardless of whether you agree with the message it's it's hell of a lot more fun than sitting sitting on your ass for the umpteenth day in a row so there's that that's an interesting point because i mean i heard it said before that sort of in the age of trump protest has become a sort of new brunch for kind of maybe it's, it's a sort of at leisure activity now it's it's like mm. going to a concert maybe uh, you know i haven't been to so many protests in the trump era in general but i, I will say the black the recent black lives matter protests do have the feel of a concert yeah and indeed there often are concerts at them mm. and i mean this ties in something else that a lot of people are talking about which is that a lot of it is middle class upper middle class often larping is the word that people use uh, role playing and if you look at the autonomous zone that's been set up in seattle where they've seized six blocks i think it is you can see that it's i mean it looks to me cynically perhaps that it's people sort of playing the part of a 60s or 70s protest they're, they're sort of imitating the style of a 60s or 70s protest rather than i don't know how hard how much they actually feel it I wonder whether they're just enjoying the the sort of coolness of being a radical inside an autonomous zone. I wonder if you think that's a fair point to make, or am I being overly cynical? So is the implication that the 60s protesters really felt it? Well, no, perhaps they were also trying to be cool. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, with with these things, it's tough to know. All I can say is um, the protesters that I I think... So I I guess I, I would acknowledge a difference between, say say if if i had i've been a victim of police brutality beaten within an inch of my life and i go out there and protest i feel a certain way that that others probably can't feel about it or say that my father was killed unarmed by a cop 99.9 percent of protesters aren't in that position they're in an, a position of empathy and sympathy where they see a video and they're protesting on behalf of a problem that they personally haven't been touched by now, that's totally fine. That's most protests around the world are of that form. But, you know, once you're that person, I'm not sure how much a difference it makes, whether you feel it, quote, genuinely or not. Because I, I think these people, for, for better or for worse, and whether their heartstrings are being pulled by a myth or by reality, I think they're really feeling the empathy that they're feeling. You know, the feeling itself is real. They're not they're not being consciously cynical. They, they might be misled. They might be, I, in fact, I would argue they've been misled, that they've been duped by, by a media that has sold them a false narrative about racist cops killing black people for, you know, seven or eight years. But do you think the cynicism is then within the media? Do you think there is a... You know, I'm not sure there is so much cynicism anywhere. I think people, I think people curate their social media news feeds to give them what they, I think people love having an us versus them view of the world. They love to think that there's a bad guy out there. And now the easiest bad guy is, is, you know, straight white male police, Trump. And yeah, sometimes those people are bad guys. There are, there are seriously bad cops and there's a smaller subset of cops that are actually racist. But I think people curate their news feeds so as to show them only things that they agree with. They've seen the videos of black unarmed people getting shot by cops, and they've never seen the videos of Daniel Shaver and Dylan Noble, Tony Timpa, countless other white men killed in precisely the same circumstances. And so they, they've gotten the false impression that this kind of thing only happens to black people. And so they're reacting as if the state is perpetrating a, you know, a war on 
black people uniquely and they're reacting as if that's true because it's true for them it's true so far as they know and do you does that apply to i realize it's hard to talk in generalizations like this but does that apply to black people who watch a video of a police brutality as much as to white people yes so do you think that black people are just as likely to be to feel incensed without thinking it through as white people yes i think so i'll probably a bit more likely because they have the feeling that our group is under attack and that it could be me it could be me next or it could be my son it could be my father you know no one in the media is doing the responsible thing which one is supposed to do and say actually your likelihood of being killed while unarmed is on par with your likelihood of getting struck by lightning you know when when we were afraid of jihadist terror after 2001 i think frankly the responsible thing to do was to remind people that actually barring 9-11 your likelihood of being killed in a jihadist attack certainly in america less so in europe but still to a certain extent it's lower than you would think if you're constantly feeding yourself videos of jihadist terror attacks and it's possible to to become paranoid about these sorts of things and to overreact okay that that's always an important thing to keep in mind in these situations and basically no one is doing that uh, with regard to police killings right now in america do you think, again, going back to the lockdown, that might tie into the fact that people, and, and especially black people, seem to be more likely to die of COVID? Do you think that people's sort of fear is on uh, is on a trigger? Yeah, uh, that, I'm. you know, I think this, even if COVID were perfectly racially equal in its deadliness, which, you know, in, in some sense is a kind of strange thing to hope for, rather than just hoping that it kills less people in general. But I still think that this probably would have happened. The George Floyd protests and riots probably still would have happened. I mean, it often with protests, it's, it's often actually related to the temperature. So it's the sort of time of year. Yeah. Um, they don't it, happen in the winter. It never happens in the winter. But I wonder where do you think this is going to go? Is this dying down already? It does seem to be, it seems to have gone from a kind of violent protest riot stage into a a sort of long festival of, of protests now. We're in the sort of festival phase at the moment. Do you think it's going... How do you think it's going to affect the election, first of all? Um, and secondly, do you think in a year's time people look back on it and go, do you remember when everyone went mad about George Floyd? As far as the election, I, I, at the moment, and we're, we're, we're speaking amidst, you know, a few days after the, the Minneapolis City Council appeared to have a veto-proof majority in favour of dismantling the police unclear about what would be replacing them, perhaps county police, perhaps so-called community police. At minimum, you know, we don't know how far people will go with the idea of defunding or dismantling the police. We don't know if it will just end up that the police end up having less military weapons, which, which I think is great, or whether we'll actually be seeing fewer police on the streets and whatnot. But certainly the perception on the right there's enough, there's enough to feed in into a legitimate fear that we are going to have a crisis that would need a law and order response. And, and what I mean by that is I, I don't see how at this point Donald Trump doesn't benefit from the, the perception that the left is completely unwilling to stand up for any kind of police presence. And do you think that helps... Trump with black people, because a lot of his, his campaign seem to think that they can use this, if, if I understand correctly, that they can use this to carry on their attempt 
and push harder on their attempt to woo black voters ahead of November? You know, I, I think if the Democratic candidate were someone other than Joe Biden, someone more to the left than Joe Biden, Donald Trump perhaps might be able to, to get some black voters. But Joe Biden, you know, he's not a radical. He's viewed as someone who probably will stick up for, who will defend the basic order and maintenance of, of civilization and society. And he has a very strong black following. So I think because of that, Donald Trump will find it very hard to court black voters. If you had someone much more to the left, if you had a Bernie Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren, I think it would make sense for Trump to really try to get a lot of black voters by saying, listen, Democrats are apologizing for the riots. The rioters are destroying the very grocery stores and pharmacies that the majority of black people in those same neighborhoods rely on. Who's speaking for them? I'm going to I'm going to make sure the police come back and protect your neighborhoods. You know, I think that message could work. But I think Joe Biden has it has a, more of an opportunity to to steal Donald Trump's thunder by by emphasizing that he's pro law and order. And as for how, how does it how does it end? I mean, will we still be talking about this next month or do you think the the, the sort of energy has gone out of this crisis or mania, whatever it is? I mean, in some ways, we've, we've been talking about this since the 60s and and before. So, yeah, this issue is not going away. It's not going away if Trump gets voted out of office. It's not going away until we have a deep shift in our hair trigger tendency to jump to racism when we see an instance of police brutality. And that doesn't seem that that tendency doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. It's getting worse, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot of talk about the sort of retribalization of America now. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, after 9-11, the us versus them that most people cared about was America versus jihadism. And that had a, for better or for worse, that had something of a uniting effect. It certainly put the race issue on the back burner for at least a few years. When Obama was elected and Iraq started to recede, and social media came to the fore, and we began seeing videos for the first time, videos that could now go instantly viral of the police killing unarmed Americans. And there was no you know, war in Iraq to, to serve as the primary bug light for our attention. I think we saw those divisions come back to the forefront. Yeah. Well, Colin, we'll end it there because I know you, you've got to get on. But um, thank you very much for joining us today, and please come on again. Absolutely. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Americano. And I'd like to encourage you all to give us your feedback, positive comments or constructive comments only, please, to podcast at spectator.co.uk and say anything you like there as long as it's reasonably polite. (laughs) 